Well, good morning. Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome again to Redeeming Grace Church. Uh, my name is John. I serve as uh, one of the elders here, as the pastor on the staff. I'm normally the one that gets up on a Sunday morning and, and preaches and teaches God's Word and applies it to our lives. And that's what we're going to do uh, this morning from the book of Romans. Uh, in a week or so, uh, my family is heading up to Valparaiso, Indiana to visit my grandparents, who are 93 and 94 years old, respectively. Uh, we haven't seen my mamma and papa since we moved here, and so uh, to Arizona, so we feel like this trip is kind of long overdue. Uh, remarkably, my grandparents still live unassisted in their own home there in Valparaiso, Indiana. And even more remarkably, they have been married for 73 years. It's incredible. Uh, what, what if this were to happen during our visit up in, uh, in, in Valpo next week? What if I were to ask my, my grandparents, tell me, tell me the secret to such a remarkably long and faithful marriage? Uh, what would you think if my grandparents responded with something like this? Well, now, John, I'll, I'll tell you the secret. Our wedding was simply magnificent. The ceremony was perfectly crafted. It was full of, of pomp and circumstance and beautiful music. Mamaw's wedding dress was simply gorgeous. And would you look at that ring that she is still wearing on her finger today? Just look how beautiful that diamond is. How could we not have had such a long and successful marriage with such a wonderful ceremony and such a beautiful ring? Well, if they told me something like that, I'm sure that I would chalk up their answer to lunacy in their old age, because we know that a successful marriage has, has nothing to do with the ceremony. It has nothing to do with the beauty of the dress or even the beauty of the ring. Those things merely attend and symbolize and represent the realities of what makes a marriage successful which are the habits and commitments that evidence a deep and abiding love for one another that withstands the ups and downs of life and the ebb and flow of feelings and all the rest. Well, friends, as silly as that illustration is, I think my grandparents' fake answer is how many people view their relationship with God. They think as long as they have the external forms of religion, as long as those things are in place, well, they're good to go, right? As long as they have kind of the trappings of Christianity around their lives, so long as they were raised in a Christian home, perhaps, or raised the right way, as long as they're, they attend church every now and then, as long as they're baptized, well, that seals the deal with the Lord. That's what elicits His love and His favor. Friends, I, I wonder if that's you this morning. I wonder if that's how you think about your relationship with God. Uh, you've been banking on the outward forms of religion as the evidence of your standing with God. But if you're honest, the reality of a walk with Jesus and a sincere obedience to God, well, that's actually not part of your life. That's absent. Friends, this, this is the type of hypocritical thinking that Paul, the Apostle Paul, takes a wrecking ball to in our passage this morning in Romans chapter 2. So would you turn in your Bibles there? Romans 2, it's on page 940 of, of the Bible underneath your seats. Friends, if you didn't bring a Bible this morning or you forgot it, grab that Bible, you can use it. If you don't own a Bible, man, we invite you to take that Bible under the seat home to be your Bible and read from it and learn from it. That would be a great joy to us. Friends, our, our text this morning in Romans 2 is very much a continuation of Paul's argument that we looked at last week in verses 1 to 11. So Paul, after, after listing the, the idolatry of the Gentiles that, that brings forth God's judgment in chapter 1, he now pivots, didn't he, to the Jews in chapter 2. The unbelieving Jews excuse their sin because of their, the spiritual advantages that they had in the Old Covenant. But Paul wants them to wake up and smell the coffee and realize that God doesn't play favorites. He will not grant them a hall pass to sin and a, and a get-out-of-jail-free card at the judgment day because of their history with, them, with Him. No, God is both righteous and relentlessly fair. No one has a built-in moral advantage to escape God's scrutiny. Every one of us is going to stand before our Creator and judge one day. And friends, the verdict that God pronounces, guilty or innocent before Him, will be the right verdict. No one will disagree with God's judgment on the last day. Why? 
because we will have had a lifetime of obedience or disobedience to back up what God pronounces. Remember the distinction that Paul is making, the theological distinction. The Lord is not going to declare us to be righteous because of our obedience, like as if our good deeds and best intentions can atone for our sin. No, only Christ's blood and righteousness can do that. And that's going to become especially clear once we get to the end of chapter 3 in Romans, where Paul's teaching on justification by faith alone in Christ alone is going to be front and center. But for now, but for now in this ongoing progressive argument, Paul wants the Romans to understand that on Judgment Day, the day when God judges every human who's ever lived, he's going to publicly expose whether the evidence of our lives matches the confession of our lips. Does the evidence of our lives match the confession of our lips? It's not enough to confess Jesus or to say we're religious. The proof will be the pudding of our lives, so to speak. And by judging in line with our works, God will prove himself unbiased, impartial in his judgment. That's how Paul wrapped up the first part of his argument in verse 11. For God shows no partiality. Now, in verse 12, he moves on to present more evidence for that case. Let's start reading in verse 12. We'll read down to the end of the chapter. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the the law requires, or for when Gentiles who do do not have the law by nature, that's another option, do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. On that day, when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you were instructed from the law and you are, you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. For circumcision is, is uh, indeed is of value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, Nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. This is the word of the Lord. Friends, I think a key to understanding verses 12 to 29 that we just read is to see that Paul really presents two competing ways of dividing the human race. The first way to divide humanity is between Jew and Gentile. That's what the Jews were doing, right? That's how George the Jew thinks of the world. Remember him, right? Paul brings along an imaginary conversation partner throughout chapter 2 as a way to kind of head off would-be objections that all humanity are sinners and are under God's judgment. He brings along this kind of imaginary Jewish partner who last week I called George the Jew. Unbelieving Jews like George would naturally object by saying, no way. No way. God is cool. He's cool with me, right? Because I have his written law. I'm circumcised. The Gentiles don't have God's law. They're they're not circumcised. They're the ones not right with God. We are, though. They divided humanity upon the ethnic lines of Jew and Gentile for their standing with God. 
Friends, don't think for a second that this kind of thinking is just a Jew-Gentile thing. It's such a common way that, that externally religious people think that they relate to God. I was raised in a Christian family, right? I've been to church my entire life. I was baptized as a child. See, I got, I got the date of my baptism right here in the front of my Bible. Right? I've got the Jesus card. Oh, I'm all about Christianity. I think the moral system and the Judeo-Christian worldview, that's the right worldview. I reject the progressive ideologies of our day as if it's one's upbringing or baptism or worldview that saves. But Paul presents another competing way of looking at the world. Paul says being a Jew and having the, the forms of religion is not worth a hill of beans in God's sight. Those outward distinctions don't matter. What matters is the inward distinction, whether your heart has been changed by grace to obey God through faith in Christ. That's what matters. It's not religion that saves, but Christ who saves, who then empowers you through His Spirit to obey God. Friends, what I want to do this morning is just, is just walk you through Paul's argument a step at a time. Because what I think he does is he drives home that, that main driving idea through a series of, of three proofs or three ways to get at it. So here's the main idea. Here's the main idea. Then I'll give you the three proofs. I don't think it's on the screen this morning, so I'll linger just a bit so you can get it down. Okay. The main idea of the text, I trust will be the main idea of the sermon. Religion can't rescue you from God's fair and righteous judgment. Religion can't rescue you from God's fair and righteous judgment. What you need is a new heart that obeys God. Religion can't rescue you from God's fair and righteous judgment. What you need is a new heart that obeys God. Three proofs in the text, the way Paul goes about proving the case. Number one, proof number one, having and hearing God's law isn't enough. You must do it. Having and hearing God's law isn't enough. You must do it. That's in verses 12 to 16. Then in verses 17 to 24, Paul presents his second proof of the case. Your hypocrisy indicts you. Your hypocrisy indicts you. And then proof number three in verses 25 to 29, physical circumcision doesn't save you, but spiritual circumcision does. Okay, we'll circle back to those, and if you didn't get those written down, no worries. I'll, I'll say them again when we come to them in the, in the text. Friends, I, I pray that God's Word would do its convicting work today, uh, that the Lord, through His Spirit, would, would convict us of any sin or hypocrisy in us, but that in turn, God's Word would encourage us that it's God in His grace that actually grants us heart, hearts to obey Him, and that is wonderfully good news. Proof number one, proof number one that religion can't rescue you from God's fair and righteous judgment, what we, you need is a new heart, is this. Having and hearing God's word is not, enough, is, is not enough. Having and hearing God's law is not enough. You must do it. Friends, verses 12 to 13 are kind of like a headline sentence that govern this entire section. On the last day, when the books are open and God, the righteous judge, holds court, External religious privilege or achievement will not be the standard by which he judges or and evaluates our lives. Look at verse 12. Verse 12, for all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. Well, what's Paul talking about? Well, Gentiles don't have the law of Moses, do they? They don't have that at at their disposal, and yet Paul says it doesn't matter. They don't need the law for God to condemn them. We don't need the law for our hearts to reject God. We humans reject the truth that He's revealed about Himself in creation. We saw that in chapter 1. We worship idols of our own making. Even though the non-Jewish world doesn't have the law, they'll still perish in the judgment because of their rebellion against God. That's what he means. And for the Jews, it's even worse. The law of Moses doesn't shield them from God's judgment. No, it actually heightens the reality that they too deserve to be judged. Because even though the Jews possess the law, they don't keep it. So God will judge those under the law by the law. Makes sense, right? God's fair. 
He's not playing favorites. The Jews are not the teacher's pet that get the curved grades from the Lord that lead to eternal life. No, God is going to judge them by the same standard as the Gentiles. Verse 13 explains further. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. So here's the the first use of this hugely important word in Romans, justified. What does it mean to be justified? Well, it's actually a legal or a forensic word. To be justified means that God, the righteous judge, declares you to be righteous on the last day. The verdict that he pronounces over your life is innocent of all sin and wrongdoing, not guilty. The justified receive eternal life. Those whom God doesn't justify receive eternal death as the the just and fair consequence for sin. And who does Paul say God will justify at the final judgment according to verse 13? Not the havers of the law, not the hearers of the law, but the doers of the law. Now, again, I know this is a bit confusing at first glance because because we are so trained rightly to say justification is by faith alone, through grace alone, in Christ alone. But but just like in verses 6 to 11, Paul is not saying that someone is justified by doing the law. He's not talking about the root cause of justification at this point. But he does say that those whom God justifies will be characterized by obedience to God's word as the fruit of their new life in Christ. That's what he's talking about. Paul's not talking here about perfect obedience. No one except Jesus has perfectly obeyed God's law. Paul is talking about consistent obedience here. The type of life that will mark those whom God justifies is submission to God's word. That's the necessary consequence or fruit of a life that God changes by grace. Paul, again, I just want to settle your hearts if you're kind of confused about this. Paul's going to get to justification by faith alone in Christ alone very clearly at the end of chapter 3. Right now, what he has in mind is the type of life that bears evidence of justification by faith. It's the life that obeys God. Now, in verses 14 to 16, Paul is going to prove what he says at the end of verse 13. These imperfect yet consistent doers of the law will be justified on the last day. Verse 14, for for when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, I'm going to rephrase it to how I think it should be read, okay? I did that the first time and every time that comma that the ESV has put after law trips me up. Here's how I'm going to read it. For when Gentiles who, don't, who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on the day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Oh boy. Okay. Verses 14 to 15, friends, may be the hardest verses to interpret in all the book of Romans. Okay. Who are the Gentiles Paul references here? Are they unbelievers? Is Paul making an argument similar to chapter 1 that although unbelieving Gentiles don't have God's law, they still, they still manage to obey the moral norms of the law from time to time? They, have, they still have a sense of right from wrong because of God's image being stamped on their conscience? Is that kind of what Paul's getting at? Or does Paul have in mind believing Gentiles, Christian Gentiles, who have trusted in Jesus and who obey God from the heart? There are good, solid, wonderful theologians on both sides of this debate. In fact, I read one brilliant theologian this week who literally just said, I'm not sure. That was so encouraging to me. Um, so how should we untangle this knot? Well, I actually believe that Paul is talking about believing Christian Gentiles here as a way to further indict the Jews for their hypocrisy. That's what I think he's doing. Okay, I think the context of chapter 2 points us this direction. So think with me here. In verse 10, in verse 10, Paul has just told us that both Gentiles and Jews alike 
whose lives are marked by seeking the things of God, well, they're going to receive glory and honor and peace. They'll be rewarded according to their, their lives. And then, uh, then clearly in verses 25 to 29 that serve as the bookends for this section, Paul highlights true heart obedience that receives praise from God, even from the Gentiles. In fact, look at verse 27. He talked about the lives of Gentiles condemning the Jews on the last day. Unbelieving Jews will be shown to be in the wrong by believing Gentiles. So I think verses 14 and 15 are just saying the same thing in a slightly different, different way. Here's another clue as you're thinking about the text and you're processing this, that Gentiles are, are Christians here in verses 14 to 15. Uh, when Paul says in verse 15 that the Gentiles show that the law, uh, 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 the work of the law is written on their hearts, well, that's New Covenant language. And Paul's pulling from Jeremiah 31, 33. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be my God and they shall be my people. Friends, we know that the new covenant is not, is not a promise fulfilled for ethnic Israel only, but for Gentiles and Jews who through faith in Jesus have become spiritual sons of Abraham. We as Christians are the true people of God, right? We, we read that in our call to worship, blessing upon the Israel of God. We're part of Abraham's family of the promise through faith in Jesus's work. So verse 15 sounds like new covenant language. And then wouldn't you know it, Paul in verses 25 to 29 explicitly, like no doubt, talks about the new covenant. This new covenant heart obedience being what matters to God, not outward forms like circumcision. One more thing as we kind of process through this. Maybe the biggest hang up to understanding verses 14 to 15 to be talking about Gentile believers, not unbelievers, is how the ESV and other translations translate verse 14 and specifically where they place the comma there. I would just encourage us to remember like there was no punctuation in Koine ancient Greek. No punctuation. All punctuation is added by the translators who are making their own interpretive decisions. Uh, the comma that comes after law could just as easily be placed after nature. There's nothing grammatically to prohibit that, and that changes the reading, doesn't it? If you read it that way, Paul would be saying something like this, when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature, comma, do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves. By nature of what? By nature of being Gentiles, right? They weren't given the law. The Jews were given the law. They don't have the law by nature, and yet... When the Gentiles do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves. They have internalized God's true law. And show, verse 15, that the work of the law, the way that God wants us to live, is written on their hearts, just like Jeremiah pro promised would happen in the work of the new covenant by the Spirit of God. Their lives have been totally transformed to obey God. And all of this, as he, Paul moves into verse 15, all of this is borne out as real and authentic, both by their conscience and their thoughts that either accuse or even excuse them on the day of judgment. And it's not surprising at all that the thoughts of Gentiles would accuse them on, the, on judgment day. We are all rebels and sinners to the core. What's shocking is that the thoughts of Gentiles like us would excuse us on judgment day. It would have shocked and stunned the Jews that the Gentiles would have a legitimate defense before God. And what is that defense? It's that God has written His law on their hearts through the work of Christ and the power of the Spirit in conversion. Jesus Himself talked about it in terms of the new birth. You must be born again. God makes people new. He transforms people's lives by the power of the gospel. Okay, we'll take a deep breath, okay? Uh, I know Paul there is making this very theologically technical argument. If that flew over your head, uh, don't worry about it. <laughs> it took me two full weeks of studying this passage to figure out what I believe verses 14 and 15 are saying. In fact, I punted these verses to this week. They were scheduled for last week. I said, I don't know what I believe yet. I need another week. So, 
If you come down in a different place, no sweat. But that's what I think Paul is saying. At the end of the day, what I think Paul's doing is just illustrating the principle that he gives at the end of verse 13. It's those who imperfectly yet consistently do the law who will be justified. And then he basically says, exhibit A. Exhibit A of that. Look at the believing Gentiles. They too have the ability to obey the law, even though they have no built-in advantages like the law of Moses and circumcision. And yet even they will be justified according to their obedience through the transforming work of the Spirit in their lives. Okay, so what's the takeaway? What's the takeaway? What do we do with that? Well, friends, I think it's much the same as verses 6 to 11. Faith without obedience is dead faith. If I confess with my mouth, Jesus is Lord. But I live my life as if I am the Lord. I shouldn't have confidence that I'll be declared righteous by God the judge on the last day. Friends, we're not going to be able to hold up our theological knowledge before God on the last day as as evidence for why he should justify us. Hey, Lord, I read the Puritans, right? I read Calvin's Institutes from cover to cover like twice. I'm a John Piper groupie. Hope you're not. I like John Piper, but don't be a groupie. But like, it's just a silly way of saying you're not going to be able to hold up your theological knowledge as as something that God should, should declare you righteous for. Friends, it's not about what you know, but how you live. The amount of scripture you've memorized in your lifetime will not hold water. The fact that you've come to church week after week and listened to the preaching of God's word is not going to cut it. God will judge you according to whether that theology and that scripture and that preaching has made any difference in your life. Has the truth made any impact on your choices, on your priorities? on your habits, on your ambitions and motivations? Are you seeking the things of God? Or are you without any remorse or repentance seeking the things of earth? Do you love God's people in the church? Or is your mind fixated on yourself? Friends, I would just encourage us not to be deceived. Don't be deceived. Don't treat God's word like a lucky charm or like a rabbit's foot whose magic in your spiritual pocket automatically qualifies you to be safe from God's judgment. It wasn't true for the Jews. It's not true for us. Having and hearing God's word is not enough. We must do it. One other quick application from these verses. Notice in verse 16, Paul writes that God's judgment on the last day through Christ Jesus is according to what Paul calls my gospel. See that? According to my gospel. In other words, the news of the final judgment is consistent with the good news of salvation in Christ. All this this, that we've been talking about over the last couple of weeks, it's not out of step with the gospel. It's right in line with the gospel of Jesus. Beloved, when we share the gospel with our unbelieving friends and family and co-workers, we must help them understand that responding to Jesus in a way that saves isn't just adding Jesus to the list of their other idols. I worship Jesus now, oh, and football. I worship Jesus and sex. I worship Jesus and fame, Jesus and wealth, Jesus and my hobbies. No, to respond in a way that saves entails repentance and a changed life. It's saying, my life is not my own. I am Christ. I'm worshiping him alone. If we water down the gospel and we remove the need for repentance, we're not doing anyone a favor. It may make the the message less offensive, but it also makes the message less saving. It strips the gospel of the hard news that can only be embraced through the work of grace and God's transforming power that gives repentance and faith to those who God has has chosen and ordained for that. Let's just be faithful to preach the whole gospel, including the hard parts, including the hard parts, knowing that while it may smell like the aroma of death to some, to those whom God calls, it smells like life itself. So number one, having and hearing the gospel is not enough. You must do it. Number two, here's proof number two, 
that religion can't save you from God's fair and righteous judgment. What you need is a new heart. Proof two, Paul's talking to the, to the Jews here, your hypocrisy, your hypocrisy indicts you. Okay? In these next several verses, Paul is resuming his conversation with George the Jew. Okay? He knows, he knows how the Jews would respond to what he just wrote. They, they would protest something like this. Paul, surely you can't possibly treat us as if we're no different than pagan Gentile outsiders. Like, have you forgotten all that God has given to us? Have you forgotten that it's to us that God gave his law and chose us as his special treasured possession? How can you act like those wonderful gifts from God don't distinguish us from the Gentiles and shield us from God's judgment? So Paul takes out his apostolic needle out of his pocket, and he's going to pop this pride balloon of the Jews. He's going to deflate their sense of spiritual status. He asks them a series of rhetorical questions to drive home the point that he's been making. Having and hearing the law is not enough. You must do it. So let's read the section again, starting in verse 17. Okay? But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and reprove what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law, for as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Whew. I mean, you can just see and sense the steam rising from Paul's pen, can't you, as, he, as we read that. He takes dead aim at the hypocrisy of those who thought that their spiritual advantages shielded them from God's judgment by exposing their lives. Friends, after all, Paul used to be just like them, didn't he? He was a Jew. He himself had all the pedigree and all the upbringing and all the training and all the external law-keeping that he thought merited him salvation. He used to trust in the very same things as they are for his standing before God. But God in his mercy radically changed his perspective through the power of the gospel. And now Paul just yearns that the Jews wake up, come to your spiritual senses, trust in Jesus. All of the things that Paul names in verses 17 to 20, I think he's looking at as real advantages. Like we're not to read those negatively. I think we should read those positively. These are real blessings that Israel had. Israel in the old covenant did have a covenant relationship with the Lord that the other nations didn't. God had chosen them. He had set his love upon them. He met Moses at Sinai and gave Israel his law, what Paul calls in verse 20, the very embodiment of knowledge and truth. I mean, think about that. What a statement. You want to find the embodiment of knowledge and truth? Don't go to Wikipedia, right? Don't go to ChatGPT. Uh, don't go to the Goodyear Library, or if that's not good enough, or the Library of Congress. Just open up your Bible. God's law reveals God, and the Jews possess the law. It's amazing. They were right. God had set Israel apart to be a light to the nations, to reflect His glory to the surrounding world, and so teach them about the ways of Yahweh. And yet... And yet, the Jews in their sense of responsibility to teach others had forgotten one really important thing, according to verse 21. They forgot to teach themselves. They forgot that what God requires is a heart that loves Him above all. Even in the, under the old covenant, covenant, that's what God requires. A heart that loves Him and obeys Him. A life that's marked by faith-filled obedience to His Word. And so Paul just flips the tables on them in verse 21 to 24, doesn't he? He says, you don't practice what you preach. He lists three colorful, even shocking examples to show how egregiously the Jews were breaking the very law they claim to know and teach. I don't think Paul's saying that every Jew committed adultery, clearly not. Every Jew stole Every Jew robbed idols. But I think he, he presents these three sins to represent the gap between their talk and their walk. 
stealing, adultery, robbing temples. The first two examples are clear enough. We know what stealing is. We know what adultery is. Robbing temples is a bit strange, admittedly. But what I think Paul has in mind is that even though the Jews claimed to abhor idolatry, they were willing to financially profit from the idols in, in the marketplace and in their business life. Perhaps some Jews even raided the pagan temples in Rome in order to sell the idols for a profit. Not entirely sure, but, but friends, here's the point. Here's the point. This was put to me as a child, and I've never forgot it. Your walk talks and your talk talks, but your walk talks louder than your talk talks. Okay? Teach that to your kid. Your talk talks or your walk talks, whatever order you want. Your walk talks and your talk talks, but your walk talks louder than your talk talks. The very, F, uh, the very essence of hypocrisy is to say one thing, even to teach one thing, and then have a life that totally contradicts it. Look at the end result. Paul paraphrases Isaiah 52, 5 and verse 24, For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. So Paul's point is, it's not merely that the Jews' hypocrisy condemned them before God. Yes, that's true. But their hypocrisy also dishonored God's very name among the Gentile world who were looking on at their lives, the supposed people of God. It's a serious sin. It's a serious sin to claim God as part of your identity and yet publicly dishonor God by your life. In fact, I think it's safe to say that it would be far better and far safer for your soul not to publicly claim to be a Christian if you have no interest in honoring God with your life. I used to work with some guys in Louisville who uh, claimed to be members of this big mega church in, in Louisville. And I remember distinctly one day at work, one of them, when I said, you're, you're a part of that church? He said, absolutely. He flipped out his wallet and took out a card proof that he was a, a member of that church. I said, what is that? He said, oh, this is the card that gets you into the church's fitness center and gym. Only members can use it. I'm thinking, methinks you misunderstand church membership just a little bit. But beyond that, this man had never given any indication that he was a Christian through his life. In fact, just the opposite. He was marked by pride in the workplace and profanity and vulgarity. But he thought he was good since he had been baptized and because this church had given him a card to carry in his wallet and get him into their facilities. Friend, don't trust in any external forms of religion to save you from what you deserve. We all deserve God's holy and eternal wrath because of our sin. But God in his love in Christ put forward his son to live the righteous life that we should have lived in our place, to suffer and die and satisfy God's wrath in our place, and then to rise and triumph over the grave. So friend, that if even today you'll say, I'm done trying to please God through my works, but I'm going to trust in Christ alone and turn from my sin, friends, you will be rescued and saved from God's judgment. And you can actually begin to live a life that truly is pleasing to God. Because friends, only those with a heart changed by God can turn from their selfishness and pride to trust in Jesus. So if you're, if you're turning from your pride and your selfishness and your self-righteousness to trust in Christ, friends, that's proof that God has changed your heart. But what about us as Christians? You know, we're so good. We're so good at compartmentalizing the way we live. Especially us as men. Sisters too, I'm sure, but I think this is, this is a problem for, for men big time. We've got our church life over here, right? We've got our family life here. We've got our work life here. Uh, church life, definitely, yeah, we're oriented toward the things of God, right? Uh, our, our, our family life, well, yeah, we kind of act another way sometimes to do our best. And then our work life over here, well, that's just when we're out in the world. We're, we're not giving much thought to the, the things of the Lord. We're just kind of out in the world doing our thing, making money, living our life. But brothers and sisters, remember that because you belong to Christ, you take Him wherever you go. Your work habits communicate what Jesus must be like to your 
coworkers and your clients. You're not disconnected from Jesus at work. You represent him there. You're his ambassador there. The things you talk about, your, your attitude toward your boss and your coworkers, the words you use, all of it, give people an impression about your king. If you're always criticizing and complaining or lazy, friends, that doesn't so much reflect upon you as much as it reflects upon King Jesus. Beloved, if your relationship to Christ has no impact on your work life, what will you say when a gospel opportunity arises? What will you say? Oh, let me tell you about Jesus. That's okay. You've already told me enough about him by the way you live. It's the same thing at home. Parents, you don't think our kids are watching to see whether our walk matches our talk? Whether we consistently live out the things that we want for them and the things that we teach them? The things that we teach here at church? Brother, what impression about Jesus might you be given to your kids by your unhinged anger or your impatience? Sister, the same thing. What are you teaching your children by your sharp tongue? You know, we all struggle with sin. We all struggle with weaknesses. None of us will live perfectly. We will sin in front of our family. But when we sin against our children, do we ask for their forgiveness? Do we even model what the gospel, how the gospel impacts our sin? Do we make things right? Do, we, do you think your kids should want to become a follower of Jesus because they see him reflected in you? Or is what you reflect to them more you than him? What God wants for, from us, I think what this passage is saying, is that God wants a single whole life where our inward life and our outward life, it matches we're the same person in private as we are in public, in our, in our homes and work as in church. Does your life, brother, sister, reflect that type of single-mindedness? Or as you think about it, do you see in yourself more of the duplicity of the Jews? Friends, let the Lord do his work in your life today. If God is dealing with you, confess your sin to him. He is faithful and just to forgive it. He will forgive it in Christ. Grab a brother or sister and say, please help me. Here's where I'm struggling. I need accountability. I need encouragement. That's what the church is for. Proof number three. Proof number three. So Paul has said, having and hearing the law is not enough. You must do it. Proof number two, your hypocrisy indicts you. Proof three, physical circumcision doesn't save you, but spiritual circumcision does. So Paul sums up his entire argument here in, in these last verses. Outward religion can't save you, not even circumcision itself, okay? Again, I think he's anticipating George the Jew's retort. Yeah, but, yeah, but what about circumcision? Surely that will carry some weight on Judgment Day. After all, circumcision is the sign of the Old Covenant. It's what makes us as Israelites distinct from the Gentiles. This is what it means to be the people of God. But once again, Paul says, so sorry, not even circumcision is a spiritual rabbit's foot, right? It's not some magic religious ceremony that gives you standing with God. That's as, that's as silly as thinking a marriage is about the ceremony, not about the life together. In fact, Paul says that there's a, there's a new covenant in place. There's this new relationship between God and his people that makes circumcision irrelevant for salvation. Look at verse 25. For circumcision is indeed of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So what's the point of being a Jew? Well, much if your life is marked by obedience to the law, but nothing if it's not. So Paul's going to fill that out in, in verse 1 of chapter 3. There is real advantage to being a Jew because you kind of have a, a head start on discipleship, right? You're already a monotheist. If you're a Jew. You already have God's law. Now all you have to do is put Christ in the center and reorient all your thinking around him. But being a Jew who breaks the law is just as bad or probably worse as being a non-Jew because circumcision doesn't matter at all. It cannot save. Verse 26. 
So if a man who is uncircumcised, that's a Gentile, right, in Paul's thought, if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. Again, technical argument here, isn't it? But I think Paul has in mind believing Christian Gentiles, just like in verses 14 to 15, whose lives are marked by this spirit-generated, faith-filled obedience, like the real Christian thing. They're living lives pleasing to God because God has changed their lives to do so. And Paul says their uncircumcision is regarded as circumcision. They're regarded as the true people of God. Not because of a medical procedure in the outer man, but because of a spiritual procedure in the inner man. Their hearts have been changed from loving themselves and their idols to love and obey God from the heart. One theologian put it this way, I liked it. Circumcision minus obedience equals uncircumcision. While uncircumcision plus obedience equals circumcision. Right? That's what Paul is saying. That's what he's trying to get across. Again, not salvation by obedience. I cannot say this enough. It's not salvation by our obedience, but obedience as the evidence of our salvation. Real Christianity, real religion, real relationship with God is not about the outward forms. It's about the inward life. Circumcision and the law, Baptism and church membership and all the rest have no advantage on judgment day if we do not have a new heart. Verse 28. Verse 28. For no one is a Jew who is merely one inwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision as a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Friends, I know this has been a full sermon, but I just want to say this is what the scriptures and God's plan of redemption has been aiming at all along. We read this morning in Deuteronomy 10 where Moses commanded the children of Israel, circumcise your hearts. In other words, cut off the part of your heart that is stubborn and rebellious. Have a heart that responds to the Lord. But ultimately, ultimately that was not something Israel could do on her own. She continued on in her sin and rebellion. And so Moses promised in Deuteronomy 30 verse 4 that God himself would circumcise the hearts of his people so that they might love him and serve him and obey him. And then much later in redemptive history, after hundreds of years of rebellion and idolatry, the Lord through the prophet Ezekiel promises the very same thing that Moses did. In Ezekiel 11, you could read it this afternoon. It'd be wonderful reading Ezekiel 11. Ezekiel 36, God promises to remove the heart of stone from the true people of God and grant them a heart of what? A heart of flesh. A heart that beats after the Lord, that responds to, the, to God. Why? Because God has put his very spirit in them. He has cleansed them from their iniquity, from their idols, and caused them to delight in doing his will and his ways. You say, John, that, that sounds amazing. How does that promise come to reality? How do I know that my heart has been changed and that I'm part of the people of God? Turn quickly to Colossians. Turn quickly to Colossians before we close. Colossians 2, and I want to start reading in verse 6. Colossians 2, 6, in him, in Christ. In Christ also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith and the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God has made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to his cross. <laughs> in other words, friends, the only way, the only way to know you've been given a new heart is to trust 
to trust in and rely on the one who kept God's law perfectly and then lived and died and rose again to set us free from sin's penalty. The way to the new heart is to trust in Christ Jesus alone. So that now through his resurrecting power, Christ's spirit gives us the ability to live a life that's pleasing to him. I love this pivot at the end of chapter 2 because as we've been reading this, even as I've been studying this, as I've preached this this last couple weeks, you know, this emphasis on judgment according to works, a life that evidences true faith, it's heavy stuff, right? It's heavy stuff. It's weighty stuff. As a Christian, like, we want this, but man, sometimes it just feels unattainable. It feels like such a struggle. Some days we wonder, am I going to make it safely home? My goodness, my sin just stands in front of me like a mountain sometimes. Will I make it home? But along comes verses 25 to 29. And Paul says, all this I've been talking about, guess what? It's a work of grace in the new covenant. You can't earn it. You can't achieve it. It's given to you through the work of Christ and the power of the Spirit. God will give you what he requires. He will cause you in the inner man to obey him through his Spirit. It's Christ in you that empowers you to live a life not for the praise of man and outward religion, verse 29, but a life of true obedience and holiness for the praise of God alone. Let's pray. Our Father, we confess this morning how prone we are to the type of uh, duplicity and double-mindedness that that Paul describes in the Jews. Even as Christians, Father, so often uh, we teach one thing, we say one thing, but we know our hearts, and they're, they're prone to wander as we sang this morning. Oh, Father, forgive us. Cause us to have a whole single life. Oh, Father, cause us to rest in Christ alone uh, for our standing before you. But give us a true passion, a true desire to represent him well in this world, to live in such a way that that marks us off, evidences that we are the people of God uh, through faith in Christ. Oh, Lord, that we would have lives that you commend on the last day. Lord, if there's someone here who doesn't know Jesus through through faith, he's never repented of of his sin or her sin and entrusted in Christ, oh, Lord, Continue to do that convicting work. Uh, we, we ask, Lord, that you would not let their conscience rest uh, until they do, until you have cleansed it through the blood of Christ, through faith in him. Oh, Lord, thank you for your love for us, for providing a way of salvation, that we can escape, that we can be shielded, that we can, can be rescued from the righteous day of your judgment because of Jesus alone. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.